Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator who is very tired after getting back from the AOS annual meeting. I want to shout out to Jeff Stambo, who asked why I keep making alligator jokes when LSU's mascot is Tigers, and apparently there's some kind of Florida football team that is the Gators. And the answer is, first of all, alligators are inherently hilarious, and secondly, I stopped pretending to care about college football when I graduated residency. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the uh, authors of these studies or the devices discussed. I'm Mark Mildren. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics, where we are perfecting total knee arthroplasty techniques on people and Sasquatch-like beings. I have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. I'm David Landy, an academic orthopedic surgeon at the University of Kentucky. And as a former junior resident to Dr. Rosenblum, we'd just like to clarify that she stopped pretending to care about college football and mascots well before residency. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors or the studies or devices discussed. So today we are extremely honored to have Dr. Christopher Pelt join us for today's podcast. Dr. Pelt is a Pacific Northwest native having done undergrad at UW in Seattle, having done medical school at Creighton, Nebraska, residency and adult reconstruction fellowship at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He currently practices at the University of Utah where he is a tenured associate professor in orthopedics. He's the medical director of the orthopedic and trauma unit at the university hospital and is the chief value officer for the inpatient orthopedic service line. Dr. Pelt, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on. Of note, Dr. Pelt is prolifically published in multiple areas, including studies regarding the anterior approach, infection, partial knee replacement, patient activation, materials, and my personal favorite study from his bibliography is a brief preoperative mind-body therapies for total joint arthroplasty patients. And I remember this study because it was at AUKUS two years ago, and uh, Dr. Gillen got up and he was like, so I'm an orthopedic surgeon. There was some weird stuff going on here. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and this study has some great stuff. So Dr. Pelt, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate having you on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's quite the introduction. You like the mindfulness study. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Do you use those techniques, Mark? All the time. Absolutely all the time. It's all about centering. And in the Pacific Northwest, we are all about getting the Zen right. Some people do the alignment of the total knee. Mine is the chi alignment. And you got to get that chi really flowing through that total knee. And then you get the perfect outcome. That sounds very Eugene-like. Yes. Nice. <laughs> and you guys did a lot of interesting stuff. I think I remember also at AUKUS, a study about online reviews. Was that from your group also? like online reviews of orthopedic surgeons and surgery offices, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we did some Prescani stuff talking about the value of Prescani scores and how they don't necessarily correlate to outcomes. The University of Utah was one of the first actually academic universities, institutions to publish online patient comments and ratings and ranking scores. So yeah, we've led the way in that very um, fun field of patient report outcome or patient comments, I guess. Yeah. So I'm going to start by discussing a study that Dr. Pelt co-authored called Extended Oral Antibiotics Increased Bacterial Resistance in Patients Who Failed Two-Stage Exchange 
for periprosthetic joint infection from the Journal of Arthroplasty earlier this year. So in short, the study is a retrospective review of over 200 patients who had a two-stage exchange for chronic PJI over a five-year period and comparing those who got at least two weeks of PO antibiotics after their replant versus those who did not. And they looked at resistant organisms and also recurrent infections. They found that prolonged oral antibiotics after this two-stage implantation was associated with increased development of antibiotic resistant organisms compared with those who did not receive prolonged antibiotics. Of note, so the group that got the prolonged oral antibiotics was 158 versus the ones that didn't was 53. So there was a lot more people who got the antibiotics. And interestingly, the pathogen associated with recurrent infection and failure often in almost all cases was different from the pathogen from the first stage. Um, The authors point out there may have been a selection bias since those who received extended antibiotics may have been perceived at higher risk, although there was no statistically significant difference in the recurrent PJI rates. So I guess I had a question to start with for Dr. Pellet, kind of what was the impetus for the study? Is this something you noticed that your colleagues were differing on? Is it something that you wanted to explore further? Like how did that idea come about? This came from our infectious disease doctors who are amazing. And we have two orthopedic specific infectious disease doctors that work side by side with us during our clinics there in a hallway right next door, seeing our patients coincidentally, it's out, it's amazing um, collaboration that we have. They're really good at what they do. And, you know, I th- sometimes think we undervalue the role of our infectious disease colleagues of just being in charge of giving the antibiotic after we're done with the surgery, but they make a lot of thoughtful decisions and analysis. And one of the things that they had been recognizing was this trend of any of the failures having a resistance profile that was different than that is typically seen in in the normal institutional antibiogram. We typically, as a result of the Meningini study and the multi-center trial, we're using doxycycline and it's a very well tolerated antibiotic, but there is a resistance profile that was being seen more commonly in the recurrent PJIs. And I had no idea, but they brought it to our attention and said, you know, we ought to go back and look at all of these PJIs. We chose five years because it was a convenience sample as you mentioned, high-risk patients in the early time frame were probably more likely to have been receiving the oral antibiotic extended prophylaxis after reimplantation, and that was simply as a result of knowledge of the results of those studies. As we became aware of it, I don't know that we ever formally protocolized it, and as we stated in the manuscript, you know, it was a little bit at the discretion of the attending surgeon. I don't know that I ever remember at the end of every surgery saying, yes, this person is absolutely getting doxy. I think that the protocol was sort of implemented slowly. So at the 2017 timeframe, you know, it was sort of, we're seeing this as a possible thing that we ought to be doing and the high risk patients for sure we were putting it on. As we moved through those years and as is written in the manuscript, we went to a nearly 100% of our patients were receiving it. So as they were seeing the differences in resistance profiles, they brought up the concept of let's go back and do a retrospective review and see if this is really something that's statistically significant or if it's just something that I'm making up. And so it was our infectious disease colleagues that brought this up to us. That's great. So what do you do now? Has anything changed as a result of the study? Do you assess each two-stage individually and decide whether they should get antibiotics after, or how does that process work now? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting findings that actually very much mirror the results in several other publications in PJI literature, that including failure of successful treatment rates in the 15 to 20% range, you know, 85 
ish percent has been a pretty reasonable, despite all the things that we've been doing, success rate that we've seen in two stage approach for treatment of PJI. So we pretty much mirror that. You mentioned that we weren't statistically significant, and that is true. It was a trend towards it being lower in the patients that did receive the extended oral antibiotic prophylaxis group. And that shouldn't be discounted because I think that we're not trying to go against the published results that have been established in the literature by the multi-centered trial. There is definite efficacy demonstrated. And so to answer the question, yeah, we currently continue in our two-stage patients to do oral extended antibiotics. There's been a little bit of additional thoughtfulness. I don't believe we've protocolized any of it as to the organism that we were treating is doxycycline, for example, the best choice, or should we choose a different antibiotic as the extended oral? When you get to the levels of the types of antibiotics that patients can tolerate in long-term chronic suppression, or for the types of bacteria that they cover, we start to run out of a lot of the antibiotics that can, people can take for a long period of time. Doxycycline is one of them. And if we burn that bridge early on, they may not have another option if they fail or have a, a recurrence or a separate organism or need chronic lifelong suppression because of the resistance to doxycycline. So they are thinking of other alternatives that would be well tolerated in the, in the three to six month at the maximum um, range. You know, I think our average dosing was anywhere between two weeks all the way up to six months and the average somewhere in that three month range. So there's other things that people can tolerate for that period of time, including fluoroquinolones, Bactrim and others. So I think our ID docs are sometimes giving us a sense I'll ask in advance. Is there an oral antibiotic that you prefer or would recommend based on the organism that we were treating in the, in the index PJI case? I think that the one practice change that I made as a result of this study that we've done here is that I'm a little more restrictive on the non-infection cases that I'm giving. They really need to have a host profile that suggests that they are indeed high risk enough to warrant us giving an antibiotic and taking these risks that we introduce with, you know, changing the antibacterial profile of the host organisms that, you know, we all have on our skin and skin flora and what have you. And um, if we start to inherently, you know, choose or select for resistant organisms and patients that really weren't even being treated for infectious etiologies, we really need to start asking ourselves the question, we're doing the right thing. So that's the one practice change I do think I've made. So, you know, this week I've done three so far aseptic revisions, and I don't think I put anybody on extended prophylaxis. They, yes, you could argue a revision is a high risk surgery. If that fails, we're going to lose big time. And I do not want to see an infection, but putting in somebody on an extended antibiotic has some inherent risks that I probably need to be aware of. And that's the change that I've made. All right, so next we'll discuss uh, a second article from Dr. Pelt and his group. Neocortex formation in a tapered wedge stem is not indicative of complications or worse outcomes. Uh, this is currently published ahead of print in the uh, Journal of Arthroplasty. In this study, uh, Dr. Pelt and colleagues retrospectively reviewed 825 patients who underwent total hip arthroplasty at their institution using a specific tapered wedge stem. Oh and who had at least one year of post-operative follow-up, including promised physical functioning scores and a radiograph. Uh, They measured the radiographic prevalence of neocortex formation, defined as a visible sclerotic margin adjacent to the hip prosthesis, and they measured this across Gruen zones. They then looked at whether the presence of a neocortex was associated with complications, physical functioning, or the radiology read. They found a neocortex was present in 68% of patients, and was most commonly seen on the lateral radiograph 
about the distal stem in Bruin zones 10, 11, and 12. The presence of a neocortex was not associated with complications, including revision surgery, though neocortex formation was associated with higher physical functioning, female sex, and lower BMI, though these associations were of weak to modest strength. Despite the lack of associated complications, 7% of radiographs with neocortex formation had a radiology read consistent with loosening. So, you know, first, I guess I'm going to start out with a similar question as Anna. I was hoping you could just kind of tell us a little bit about the motivation to do the study. I need to bring you guys around and read all my articles for me, man. These summaries are fantastic. <laughs> understanding them better than I did as, a, as an author. So this is phenomenal. So. Uh, thanks for that amazing introduction. How did we come up with this study idea? I, I think you probably already have the answer, right? It is an annoyance in clinic with getting a radiology read saying, please pay close attention, concern for subsidence or loosening, F further you know, studies recommended, further radiographs for progression or follow-up recommended, um, and having never had seen it as a clinical problem. So that was one side of it. The other side of it was, I see it all the time in clinic and I read all my own radiographs along with our residents and fellows and everybody in clinic with me, my PAs, and people will notice it. And so do I. And so it's like, well, we should describe this just a little bit better and not just say, yeah, that's a normal thing. Don't worry about it, but try to identify how prevalent is the finding and then really try to do something scientific with it, correlate it to an outcome, whether there is an increased risk of complications, uh, revisions, fracture, are these loose implants or not? So those were the two sides of it. Both is a thing that I see a lot. And then it was a thing that was a little bit kind of annoying from the radiology reads. I don't know about you guys in our institution, radiology reports go directly to the patient in their electronic medical record interactive platform. And they used to have like a delay and now it's immediate. The same time that I see it, it's available to them as well. The, the delay in theory was to allow for people to have reviewed it. In particular, you could think of sensitive diagnoses, cancers and other things that might be present in a report that needed to be thoughtfully described or, or presented to a patient. But now it's all an immediate release system. And you know, there's patient anxiety that's associated with that. It, it was an anxiety provoking thing for me as a surgeon. I never want to have a complication. And I certainly wanted to ensure that I wasn't missing something. And then, then finally, that finding, I just had never seen it correlated to anything that was wrong. Thigh pain, this is a retrospective study. So we didn't really have some sort of discrete data field that said thigh pain, yes, no, as a binary outcome metric that we could go back and retrospectively review. If it was present, we would have mentioned it in our subjective or, or assessment and plan or something, but we never really correlated it with that just in our clinical record either. It wasn't a metric that we monitored for the, the results of this paper, but I, I didn't see thigh pain. I didn't see fractures and these didn't look loose. And so with all those things, that was kind of the impetus behind the study is just to say, all right, let's just describe this. I actually think it's been described well in, in orthopedic literature in the past and probably even in orthopedic joint literature, just with different stem designs and geometries in the past. So it was just worth us updating a modern stem. It's had a high use in the last you know, 10 to 20 years in the United States and just describing this finding a little bit more. 
do you think, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but the study looked at one geometry of stem design. Do you think this is common across all stem designs? Do you think that distal geometry plays a large role in development of this neocortex? You know, are there other factors that go into this that, you know, maybe we should cue into where, you know, if we see a, we see a neocortex in this stem design, okay, that's actually something that we need to pay attention to. I don't think it's universal to all stem designs. This is a proximally porous coated, and this particular iteration of this stem was a distally reduced tapered geometry so that it, the, the design was designed to eliminate cortical impingement and potentially thigh pain and or distal potting where there isn't any porous coating. So it's really, I'm not even sure if this is a real term. I always call it the dangling participle. It's a piece of metal literally sitting inside of the canal, doesn't have any porous ingrowth surface. It is titanium, but it's a smooth surface of titanium with a, a very light rough and grit blast at best that doesn't make cortical contact. There's an, a titanium, yes, has a modulus more close to that of bone, but it is not the same modulus. The modulus elasticity of bone is still that softer, more flexible and lower than that of a titanium stem. So I think it's those two things. It was a piece of smooth titanium, not the porous ingrowth surface, sitting inside of the canal, not making cortical contact, has no intention by its inherent design to have ingrowth. And then you see the neocortex form around it. And as you mentioned in the uh, summary of the article, it's always seen distally. If you saw it proximally, it could be of concern because that's where the porous coating is. So zones one and seven and the anterior-posterior correlation of that, you would want to have no radiolicity and no radiosclerotic or neocortex lines because that's the porous ingrowth area. Distally is where we see this common finding. And it is because there's no reason for bone to really be attaching to this type of stem at that location. A diacetyl engaging stem, a fully porous stem, even a fully HA-coated stem potentially, I don't think that this would be a finding that you should expect, and maybe you should draw particular attention to it. So I do think that the STEM design and geometry is important. It isn't specific to the one brand or this particular one design. We didn't study others. One of my partners, you mentioned Dr. Gilliland earlier, uses a different wedge taper design. And he says, oh, I see that all the time too. Let's just combine them. It got a little bit confusing to try to get two different types of STEMs and geometries and patients and and so we just focused on one that was done by myself and Dr. Peters over a course of 10 years. I do think that these types of stems and similar design characteristics that are not those that I just mentioned probably could see the same phenomenon, but we only studied the one. And just for clarification for maybe some younger listeners, assuming there are any, can you talk a little bit about sort of the difference between this neocortex formation that you're describing in the paper and more classically a pedestal? Yeah, I mean, a pedestal is usually at the tip of the stem, and it's often associated with radiolucencies proximally, and it's a reactive formation of bone that's really, you think about the bottom of the stem and your, your body trying to stop it from coming down as it's seeing excessive motion. The difference with this is there isn't a radiolucency, particularly around the porous coated region of the implant. The radiosclerotic or neocortex <laughs> line is sort of more like a halo pattern around the entirety of the smooth non-porous surface and not just at the uh, distal tip where there's a force concentration of a loose stem trying to be pushed down. I guess those are the sort of the critical nuance differences. 
And so, you know, you guys had a low revision rate in your series, but just sort of generally speaking, do you think the neocortex formation complicates stem extraction at all? So let's say one of these patients ends up getting septic, you know, chronic hematologist infection eight years out. Do you think it's more challenging to get the stem out if there's a neocortex or it's kind of irrelevant? I don't think so. The bone isn't attached to the stem. It is a sclerotic region of sort of new bone, neocortex inside of the canal. All of us have done residencies in trauma. Some of us still take trauma call and do nails, nail extractions. You take a titanium nail out of the intermedullary canal. There's a neocortex that's left behind. It doesn't make the, I mean, I guess if the bone grows through a slot or through an interlocking hole or something like that, that would be challenging to remove it. But you always see that when you remove a nail like that, you leave behind a perfect negative impression mold of neocortex in the inside of the medullary canal. And this finding is essentially that, but just instead of around a nail, around, as I mentioned, the smooth distal non-porous region of these sort of proximally porous wedge tapered stems. So I don't think it makes it any more challenging. You might have to break through it if you're trying to ream the canal to get diaphyseal and reaming and cleaning it out, maybe break through it with a, a reamer or a starting drill a ball tip guide wire or something, but not for extraction, no. How do you address your door C femurs, your stove type femurs? Are you still press fitting this neocortex formation? Has it changed anything about your practice or anything like that? I think my practice has changed a lot, including the stem that we're describing in the study I use very rarely today. It has been a great stem. My partners still use it. But I think we've seen generally, if you even look at the AJR data over the last couple of years in particular, there's been a trend away from the tapered wedge, which had been 2014 to 2018, the number one utilized stems in the United States were of any of the top five brands, a tapered wedge stem. And we've seen this shift to these metaphyseal, anatomic, collared, whether or not they have HA, but these sort of anatomic, proximally filling stems. And so I've moved significantly, almost a hundred percent to those, except in the door C's or in the octogenarians or the high risk patients where my other shift in practice has been a significantly increased use of cement. And I've moved to a tapered slip, you know, smooth, uh, cemented stem in, in higher risk patients that I'm concerned for the risk of periprosthetic fracture. So uh, I think we're going to go to a section of the podcast called The Gauntlet. And that's where we just ask you random questions about your practice and maybe how you dress stuff. And honestly, like for me, this is one of the most informational times and just seeing how the people that know what they're doing do things. And then I try and do things like those people do things as someone who does not know what he's doing. Tell me who those people so, are so I can do that too. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so I think at first, just a couple questions about knee replacement. Are you a manual guy? Do you use navigation? Do you use robots? What are your thoughts about that? What do you use right now? And what would you use? Well, this is going to be a loaded question. So my current use of technology and knee replacement is pretty limited. I have used routinely in the past couple of years, a robotic technology that I've moved away from. I do use an accelerometer based pod type of tool for navigation of the femoral center of rotation. If I have retained hardware or some deformity that makes it challenging to use intermedullary guidance currently. My interesting thing that I took away from the use of robotics was as a measured resection trained surgeon, I started to use the robot essentially to fix a flexion gap and the rotation of the femur. And it turns out that's what gap balancing does. And 
it gave me sort of a, a newer understanding of sort of the hybrid technique, I guess, of measure dissection and gap balancing, but also the value. If you have a really good manual gap balancing instrument that can tension the ligaments after, you know, you've dealt with appropriate ligamentous anomalies or tightness or laxities and osteophytes and all that, a, a good gap balancing tool can really give me the exact same information that I was using a very expensive robot that has disposables and I have to drill pins into the bones for and deal with it being in the way of my assistant or me while the resident is trying to do a case or something. And so I've honestly just moved away from the use of the robot recently and been really happy with doing gap balance knees. I still do measured resection knees. I've done PS and BCS and AS and ultra congruent and bicruciate. And I've kind of played with a whole bunch of things, but yeah, the use of technology definitely has decreased for me. So you mentioned briefly, you've done CR, PS. What is your go-to now? I think a congruent bearing is my preferred choice with a CR femur. I switched to a different manufacturer uh, a couple of years back and I wasn't really sure I liked their congruent bearing, tried their sort of PS design and, you know, had the same things that I thought I didn't want with a PS, which is a little bit of issues of some sound complaints from the patient, clicks and clunks and those kind of things. Um, you look at the results and actually Utah is where the ultra congruent bearing design really originated from and Aaron Hoffman, uh, and he's one of my mentors and trained me and he said all along, it was the best. And I think there's a lot of studies that are starting to support that lower revision rates. We had our own review of our CR versus ultra congruent type of designs or AS or whatever you'd like to call the congruent designs, deep dish. Some people call them lower revision rates, lower manipulation rates. And then other um, registry data showing the minimally stabilized compared to posterior stabilized designs, again, demonstrating lower revision rates. And again, going back to the sound issues, I think I've had just overall better satisfaction from my patients. So my current preference is a some sort of a congruent bearing design with a CR femur. I will say that for me personally too, that was a big, honestly, just hearing the patient say, my knee's great, but it clicks and it clicks. And I, you know, just that feedback of like, Every time I go downstairs, I feel it click and it just didn't feel like natural. That sort of shaped my transition to, to a deep dish design. And every knee, to be fair, all knee replacements click. So True. they're never going to be silent and, and even the congruent bearing, and they're all going to give some clicks. I just noticed in my own practice that it feels a little bit of a different, a different type, perhaps, and a, a different level of patient concern. Do you Definitely. routinely take the PCL when you're doing those things? <laughs> Great question. So the PCL cannot be functional, but it can be present. By that, I mean a congruent bearing by design is designed to have the femur essentially stay in the same pivot point. If a PCL is intact, its function is to create rollback. If you create rollback with a congruent bearing, you create a kinematic conflict against the, the upsloping posterior lip of the bearing for one. And secondly, you take the upsloping anterior lip of the bearing and you shove it to the front of the knee. And unlike a PS that has a relatively flat profile in the front or a CR bearings profile, which doesn't have the anterior lip that's designed to prevent posterior drawer, posterior subluxation, that short, sometimes it's even a sharp lip, but it's a very prominent lip gets pushed to the front of the knee and you get uh, infrapatellar impingement, anterior knee pain. You can see uh, patellar baja and scarring and issues associated with that. So my big tip and trick, if you're going to use an ultra congruent or any type of congruent bearing design, 
is that it's, it potentially okay to leave fibers of the PCL present as long as it's not forcing rollback. Do you know, uh, and so this is something that I've kind of struggled with, and I, I have gone to taking PCLs on everyone. I don't know of any studies because I know people that leave the PCL on these uh, congruent knees, and I haven't seen any studies. I've seen a couple studies showing no difference in outcomes, and you'd expect to see a difference with this kinematic complex. Do you know of any studies that have shown a difference between taking and leaving the PCL with an ultra congruent poly? I think it's so poorly executed by a surgeon, let alone documented as to what they actually did sure. with the PCL. I don't know of a clinical result. I mean, I can think of a couple of kinematic stuff. Thomas Doc has done some things that have looked at the fluoroscopic kinematics of the various designs. But when you really think about my surgical technique, I mean, if the knee is balanced and I got the congruent bearing in and it's not driving the tibia forward, I don't even document anything. I didn't write in my releases because I do have a discrete field in my op notes for what release did I do. But if I didn't actually formally skeletonize the notch, I don't even document something. But how do you study that in a retrospective clinical review of your types of releases and the outcomes that, that occurred? I think a randomized trial would probably be the best way to do it. But then you have to have somebody really write an assessment of what was the PCL still doing. It's so sure. variable. And it's why I don't do CR knees. I think it's such a variable tension. It's such a variable amount of rollback. It's such a variable amount of its effect on the flexion gap, for example, when you take it or leave it. And I don't know, we're not very good at that, um, at, at documenting what we're actually doing. We do a robot and then we put it all together and we go, I don't really like to adjust this. Oh, that felt good. And then the robot is responsible for the outcome, I guess. I'm not really sure. That's... We all have our way of feeling and sensing it, you know, and, and I don't know that we document what we sensed very well. We don't even know how to teach it very well sometimes, let alone document it. Sure. Is there anybody you're, you're going straight to a PS with? I mean, like, you know, valgus deformities or anything like that? Yeah, not for any particular deformity. I think patelectomy is still probably the one. Um, you know, sort of, I'm going to do a PS on this particular patient cohort. Why patelectomy? If you really go back to it, people are like, oh, you have to have the posterior spill. It's not really about that. It's an enforced reproducible rollback that you get the improved lever arm of the quadriceps and extensor mechanism. Because of the rollback, you get an improved vector across the extensor because you don't have the fulcrum of the patella still present. You need the rollback to potentially improve your extensor mechanism. It isn't necessarily anything about it that's posterior stability. The anterior lip of a congruent bearing can provide that. But besides that, no. This week, for example, although I mentioned I've done CR with congruent bearings routinely as a preference, I did choose to do a PS. And the reason was we had gone through a gap balancing, thought we had measured equal um, resections. And the congruent bearing felt just a little less, a little less tightened flexion than I had wanted. And if you look at a lot of the PS designs, the PS design forces that rollback. And there's a slight, instead of a CR bearing, which goes down at the back by three degrees in many, it's either flat or a slight up. So when you have a rollback, it actually drives it up onto the high spot of the posterior aspect of the bearing. So I chose it to improve flexion stability actually this week. It's kind of counterintuitive. Oh, if you use a PS, you cut the PCL out, but we'd already done our gap balancing and it just felt just still on the little looser side than I had liked. That's my other indication for it currently. When you do that, do you have to recut the slope of the tibia? 
I cut them all pretty flat. I mean, I'm shooting for three degrees and not six or more. And so I use a three degree cutting block and I'm shooting to take slope out in both. I mean, because of the potential taking of the PCL that we mentioned with the congruent bearing, I am not trying to match the slope because then if I lose PCL, I can increase the flexion gap and increase the risk of flexion laxity. So even with my congruent bearings, I'm shooting for a flatter slope than the native or anatomic slope. So if you don't mind, we kind of go through an infection workup and how you would deal with both an acute and a chronic infection. So let's say a acute PJI shows up in the ED. Let's start with maybe two weeks of symptoms. You're you know, obviously planning a, a one-stage washout. Uh, first question, do you wait for cultures before you do surgery or do you do surgery the next day in the absence of, of speciation of cultures? So... On the occasions where I made a decision to do a debridement and retention, I sort of think time is of the essence. I do think it's nice to know speciation and sensitivities of the organism, but I'm kind of a biofilm freak. And I'm thinking about just like the logarithmic continued reproduction of this bacteria sitting in the knee for the longer that I wait. So I tend to get to it as quickly as possible. Once I've made that decision that this is a candidate for debridement and retention protocol, I go back to the hospital that night. I won't do it at two in the morning, but I would do it that evening if I've decided on that's the appropriate treatment for this diagnosis or the next day. And I have not tended to favor the idea that somehow identifying the organism is going to change it. My surgery is really not all that different. And my debridement and retention I'm not really selecting for some sort of antibiotic to implant. They can figure that out for the parenteral. Yeah, I throw some powder in, but I throw Vanco powder in. And usually we had a shortage of tobramycin, interestingly. We've gone to ceftazidine powder. So I might throw a gram of each of that at the most, but the debridement and retention is an entirely, not a, a minuscule, but it's an entirely mechanical process that I don't think makes much difference if I knew which bug it was. Do you mind kind of sharing what your washout irrigation solutions are? What do you do for those dares as far as, you know, what you wash out with? Do you use bioabsorbable beads? Do you use any of the acetic acid compounds? What's your washout? How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we all know that there's not amazing science to guide us right now. The best right. possible data that we have is right now, it's coming from our retrospective data on primaries and which irrigant solution and you know, the most recent consensus and most recent publication on this issue was dilute betadine. Well, in the case of a, a presence of uh, infection in biofilm, I've tried to go through a little bit of thoughtfulness on what's going to disrupt biofilm, kill bacteria, not be overly cytotoxic to native host tissue. But at the same time, I'm not all that worried about that issue because it's only going to be there for a few minutes and then we're going to wash it out in between. I am trying to mechanically disrupt everything that I can. So a radical synovectomy, we've even thought and sometimes have used methylene blue to stain it. I learned that from the plastic surgeons in like uh, decubitus ulcer debridements. And you can stain the synovium. That way you see that you got everything. More often than not, you can tell without that though. There's also been some studies talking about that it can stain biofilm on our implants. So you can see if you get at it. Do you mind kind of going through, so the methylene blue, do you inject that pre-op and then- Yeah, before um, you make the okay. capsulotomy, you can open the skin and then inject it through the capsulotomy. You don't want to get a tattoo in the skin, I don't sure. think, but yeah, you could inject it through a sinus, I suppose, if you had a draining sinus as well. So that would be what I would do. I haven't done it routinely, but we've played around with that as an idea to kind of identify the tissue that you know you have to take out. 
Then besides the taking everything out, there are some places that you don't feel comfortable or you don't know if you already took it out, like the back of the knee, it starts to look really scary. I tend to use thermal treatment on the back of the knee. So that's one of the rare occasions in knee surgery that I'll use an irrigating bipolar device of some sort. I don't have science to prove that either, but it makes sense to me that if it's getting hot enough to make my tissue burn or some other tissue burn, it should kill some organisms. So in areas where I'm really worried about debridement, a little bit in the hip as well, around the sac nerve or on the posterior capsule where you're not sure if you can take that tissue, I'll use that for thermal treatment. And so then you asked about the irrigants. So then we'd spend no less than I feel like 45 minutes, it's probably 15 minutes per irrigant. We've started with a chlorhexidine, a dilute chlorhexidine. It's a soap, a surfactant and an antiseptic. And so we think that we can break the surface tension. And then we use mechanical scrubbing. I use sterile toothbrushes in addition to those things that you get out of the scrub sink and you pull the sponge off and use the other side. It's the best thing that I can find with a sterile toothbrush to get in the nooks and crannies. Although you do have to be careful not to let the bristles start breaking off because they wear out just like they wear out at home. Then we irrigate it all out. And then we do a Dakin's with a bleach solution currently, a dilute Dakin's and that is an oxidative process. And so it takes very quick. And again, it, let's try to be cytotoxic and shock it. We have thought of the acetic acid compounds instead of the Dakin's. Uh, Dakin's was used at our institution a long time ago and kind of stuck. I don't think many of my partners like using it, but I'm still sticking to it so far. Irrigate all of that out. Then we use a um, betadine and peroxide solution where we make the dilute betadine and then add some hydrogen peroxide. That creates bubbling. It looks like it's killing stuff when you can see all these bubbles. That's really, I think, beneficial. <laughs> and then the other half of the dilute betadine, after I irrigate all that out, then we're kind of done. We've done a double drape and we've had a back table of all clean instruments. And then we change everything. At that point, I'm saying I spent 45 plus minutes with three different things that are killing everything that I can think of. The last thing I want to do is take hands that just have had pus all over them and then grab a new poly and shove it back in there. It's almost like a whole lot of work for the last 10 seconds of the surgery. All right, now we're gonna stick a poly in and close. But it seemed like it makes sense to us to decrease bio burden around the field where you're getting ready now to say, this is clean and I'm gonna close this up and give it to the patient for the rest of their life again. So we usually will take our dirty drapes down. We've usually double drapes, so we don't have to like take everything down and then redrape. Mm -hmm. We do a double drape and then take that away. So we're left with clean drapes. We scrub out really quickly and scrub back in. And then the back table is already brought over. So we're just using clean instruments to finish the case. What do you use for your leg positioner, by the way? If you're double draping, how do you do that with a leg positioner? I know it's- a So uh, we have two of them, but um, you use one on top of the dirties and you get rid of it. And then you use a clean one on the second drape. Okay. I use a DeMeo. It is- the easiest one for me. Some of my partners use the Alvarado. They all sure. work. I think you could do it all the same. Okay. What is your length of time where you will go to a dare versus uh, you say, look, this has been going on too long. I know this is a loaded question too. Dare versus shoot, this is not going to work. We need to do a two stage. We're going to do an explant at the first surgery. So many factors, you know, you asked earlier about what you do a dare if you didn't know the organism. Well, there are certain patients where it sure is helpful if I have a resistant organism, a type C host, and a duration of, I, if we're talking about a chronic setting, so later than a year out from surgery, but an acute hematogenous, 
you know, the duration, is it two days? Is it two weeks? Is it three weeks, four weeks, six weeks? I definitely err on moving away from dare uh, with knowledge of resistance with a poorer host. That's the one that's the hardest thing to make a decision as a surgeon. We often say this sick old patient probably can't tolerate us doing a big old surgery on them. We should just do a washout. That's the same patient that's probably at the highest risk for failure. And they're at the highest risk for having a complication if we have to take another whack at them later down the road. And so on those patients, I would much rather be thinking of doing an explant and like a one and a half stage or, you know, the permanent spacers, whatever they're calling them, destination spacers, doing it a little <laughs> differently, but high dose antibiotics. I haven't heard a destination spacer before. That's fantastic. I'm going to start That's awesome. That. That's wonderful. Yeah. I guess one question for a destination spacer, what are you using for your construct? Are you using an all polytibia? Do you use dowels? Are you using revision stuff for your femur? What do you use if you're making a one and a half stage? Articulating spacer with a CR femoral component. Even if it was a revision with bone loss, you can make it up with the cement laden antibiotic as an augment on the femoral side, the tibial side. I just use that congruent poly we talked about earlier, and I drive a stymen pin down it and create a cement dowel underneath it. So my partners use the all poly tibia as an alternative option. The implants that I've traditionally used didn't have until recently all poly tibias. And so I hadn't used them before, but yeah, I use dowels on both sides to get a little better fixation. The difference for me between a destination or a one and a half stage spacer and a spacer an articulating spacer that I'm planning to do a two stage on is how wet I put the cement in for these patients that I want to have them survive with it. I mix it with the high dose antibiotics, but I stick that cement in and try to get good interdigitation and fixation with that high dose antibiotic cement so that that won't have an aseptic tibial loosening in 10 months or a year or two years, something that, that potentially, just like you mentioned, an all polytibia has good durability because we do a good job doing this surgery. If we choose to do, you know, wait till it gets dry and tacky and then kind of move it around so that we can pop it back out in three months, that's not going to lead to a long lasting durable destination spacer. Thank you so much to Dr. Pelt for joining us. You can find links to the articles discussed in this episode on the AUKUS YAG website, as well as information for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group. Please review us and give us five stars, or as I like to call it, a five millimeter augment. Make sure you follow New Knee Society member, Dr. Christopher Pelt, on Twitter at, at P-E-L-T-M-D and follow Young Arthroplasty Group as well. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.